y'all. This is where Texas politics gets interesting. Here again are two guys named Jason, some great guests, and cold Texas beer for another smart conversation on Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. Hey, everybody. Welcome back for a, another week of uh, Yolitics. Jason uh, Whiteley. How are you uh, after that legislative session? You were pulling, what, 20-hour days all week, or at least that's what you wrote down on your time card uh, so that you could get that uh, extra comp time? You know, it's funny. Every time I, I asked for some backup, for some help, they said you were either at the spa or getting your nails done. So uh, you wouldn't know what the real work is like, my friend. I guess uh, we're hey, going on this podcast. I didn't know. You just you just came out of the gate swinging on this thing. I, I did. Uh, it's almost like I had some axe to grind there. Yeah. Uh, no, actually, you did actually put in some very long days. Uh, and and your Austin nails do look week. good, by the way. Your, your they do. And, and do you yeah. notice how moisturized I am? You are. You're, I can tell. You're, you're, the Botox is really working well in your forehead because <laughs> like when you're laughing there, I, I don't see any lines. I have no Botox in my forehead. Do you know why that is? Because uh, I, I thought you were going to ask me where, where it was. No, no, no. Why no, or no. where, I'm not going to tell you that. Uh, no, the, the, the reason being is that I have this great Neanderthal ridge up here in my forehead. Uh, right. it, it's very cavemanish, and, uh, and it, it, it presses it out and therefore it keeps wrinkles from developing there. So there is a benefit, uh, to having that sort of Neanderthal look, I guess. So it's, it's a natural, uh, thing you have going there. It is a natural wrinkle free wow. forehead, which is, I great. still have wrinkles in mine as we as we look on this but, i think uh, this is another podcast this is definitely yeah. a future podcast what are you drinking today so i, I i'm ex i was excited i was really excited about this beer um oh, okay. i i'd never heard of it before i'm like wow there's a new texas beer um and and uh here i'll show it to you it's it's called the four sixes oh yeah grit and glory pilsner yeah. i saw I heard I about I, this when we were in austin did you? I I, I saw. The, I don't know where I bought this Kroger or or uh, Central Market or somewhere like that, um, or, or maybe the, the the beer place in Lakewood, which I cannot remember the name of that place in Dallas. I got it. I'm like, yeah, where where is this made? I've never heard of this. I'm like, wow, let me check it out. I roll it over on the side, and a tiny little print. It says brewed and canned by Grit and Glory Brewing Company, Lawrenceville, Georgia. Shame on you. Me? Gosh, that's not even close. Me? Come on. That's interesting because we just heard about this in Austin the other day. Somebody was talking about four sixes. I think you're not the first person to think that that is a Texas beer then. I got fooled. It says even heritage runs deep on the top of it there. Well, and the Georgians it, are tricking us. Is that false advertising? I, if it wasn't a Pilsner, I probably wouldn't drink it. <laughs> uh, well, I am. What are you uh, having, man? Well, I'm, I'm keeping us legit here because I am having a Texas beer. I believe that this is brewed. Yeah. San Antonio, Texas. Uh, free tail brewing company i am having the oh, yeah. graduate the graduate is a logger with key lime because after this podcast you will graduate with a degree in texas energy this, <laughs> oh this, yeah you're right this is really good man is it for a georgia yeah. beer for a georgia beer that, I, I, know, uh, I feel like i have to turn in my texas card at the next stop yeah i think um, you're done but man that's that's good stuff i think we're gonna have to kick you out uh, so you alluded to this, uh, you know, we're getting into electricity here. It's not the sexiest thing in the world. Um, and, you know, it's something most of us just don't even really think much about until, until the it goes, day that, yeah, yeah, right. until the day that it's, you know, going down or, you know, we're being told that it could go down. Uh, and we've been through that, it seems like, way too many times in these past couple of years. Uh, we bring this up because we've just been through a second legislative session now following that just absolutely horrendous debacle in February of 2021 when we saw so many people die across this state and 
so many people lose power across this state for long periods of time uh, because of winter storm Uri. Uh, and, you know, people after that thought, well, you know, this, got, this has got to be fixed. Leaders yeah. in this state have continually said, we got to fix this. We're going to fix this. They've been through two legislative sessions now. And, uh, you know, we hear all the time from the Public Utilities Commission or PUC or ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, uh, about all of this. They administer the, the whole grid here. And the experts coming out of this session say, or, or at least the experts we've been hearing from say, they didn't get it done again. It's, it, you know, ERCOT, the PUC, legislators, uh, elected leaders, the governor, they're not focusing on the right fixes here. And so they say, you know, the good thing is they didn't make the system necessarily worse because they felt like some of the bills could have made things worse if they had passed. But the bad news is, is that they say it's just not where it needs to be. This is one of those issues that I thought they would just take care of. It's not a really political issue. It's not part of the culture wars. So there's not really, uh, you know, pro and con for it. I just expected them to take care of it. You know, we we saw what Governor Abbott tweeted after Winter Storm Uri saying everything that needs to be done to the grid has been done to the grid, essentially telling everyone, hey, all is well here. Don't worry about it. But then last month, uh, a month ago now, Pablo Vegas, the CEO of ERCOT, comes out and says some things that are kind of frightening that, hey, we, we might have a tough summer ahead of us here when it comes to keeping the lights on. Mm -hmm. That's something that took me by surprise. I did not expect that, Jason. Yeah, and then they came out with this news conference and you think, oh, well, they're gonna give us an update after the legislative session. Yeah. And instead what they said was, we've got this new program we're unveiling as to how we're going to tell you when things look really scarce or when it looks like we kind of have an emergency situation with supply in this state and how we're gonna let all of you know about it. And you think, man, that's not yeah. a great omen going into, into summer. Uh, that should and, tell you something right there if they're giving you a whole new system to be on the lookout for. Right, uh, to, to let you know about potential scarcities. And so here we are in the, you know, what's often called the energy capital of the world. And that's not just oil and gas, also wind and solar, huge here in this state. And once again, we go into another summer after another legislative session, wondering about whether supply will be able to keep up with growing demand here in Texas. So we got a couple of great guests uh, that we're bringing into the conversation today who are well-versed in all of this. And they're really good, I think, at breaking it down so that the rest of us can understand this stuff because it does get kind of complex in places. Uh, we're starting off with a guy named Doug Lewin. He is an energy analyst consultant type. He founded Stoic Energy. Uh, he used to work in the capital, and I think that gives him a really great perspective as to what goes on there when it comes to electricity. And so welcome, Doug Lewin, to the podcast. So Doug, uh, you know, Wheeler has this saying that it's never too early for a flash of anything so be <laughs> before we get going here um you uh you're kind of a beer fan like wheeler i i am absolutely a beer fan particularly a texas beer fan i have way too many beers on my desk here i don't know if you guys scheduled enough uh time for this so my my two kind of go-to's are real ale out of uh blanco the the swifty apa and then uh thirsty goat amber ale just a good you know, easy drinking amber. But the one I wanted to particularly kind of shout out to that was yesterday at Meanwhile Brewing, which is in Southeast Austin. 
And this is, you know, one they just make there and, and put in cans right there so it doesn't necessarily look special. But there's one in here called, oh, what do they call it? It's, I think it's called Take Me to the River. And it's a, a special beer they did as a fundraiser for the Living Waters uh, Initiative in Texas to try to have water conservation, make sure we have enough water supply in the state. And that was one of the big things that came out of the session that I think was a positive. The state did put some money towards uh, water supply and flood yeah. prevention and all that. So shout out to Meanwhile for, for helping out Living Waters. Sure. Yeah. Two, $2 billion, I think, lawmakers set aside for that, which is about a third of what, of what Wheeler spends on on alcohol each year. Um, <laughs> I don't know. He, you know, he, but, Doug has quite a selection there yeah, just you're, sitting on his desk. That's pretty amazing. You're, you're putting us to shame here with your selection, man. Um, hey, so, so let's get into it here because, you know, we we've done podcasts during the session talking about what might pass, the bills that were introduced, things Republicans wanted to do. Um, and, and people have questions on what actually passed. But then Pablo Vegas, the uh, you know the guy in charge of ERCOT, the state's electric grid, came out the other day and said essentially that, you know, hey, we could have record high demand this year and no one's really sure whether the grid is going to hold. Th those weren't his words, but that's what I took away from it. I'm a little concerned going into the summer, Doug. Should I be? Well, first of all, I will say I think some of the communications out of the PUC and ERCOT are pretty confusing, right? I mean, that that one the other day was a little confusing, but the one they, they did, and I think it was early May, was particularly confusing because they said in the space of the same 30-minute press conference, the sky is falling and we don't have enough dispatchable power and everything's fine. The grid's more reliable than it's ever been. There's literally the two, they said that in the, in the space of the same 30 minute press conference. Um, I think the truth is somewhere in between. I think, you know, what, what you're looking at with, with the summer, Jason, is when, when you, there's sort of a, a trifecta you're looking for that is, that is dangerous. Super high demand, right, caused by high heat. And it's not just a day or two, it's when that heat persists for six, seven, eight days or more. And you're looking at temperatures in the like 105 degree range across all the major metros. Um, demand is really high, but equipment tends to break then too, right? So you're looking then for the high thermal outages, how many thermal power plants, and by thermal, we mean gas, coal, and nuclear, how many of those go down, and then low wind. And sometimes you hear people talk about one or two of those three things, but it's really all three of those things happening at the same time, high demand, lots of thermal power plants offline, and low wind. When those three things happen at the same time, that's the formula for trouble over the summer. Um, it is it is frustrating to me. So we didn't see much done there in the legislative session on the side of trying to curb demand in this state. Uh, we're, we're not addressing the demand part of it, um, but you have to be coming out of this session feeling pretty good about some of the other things that, that failed along the way as well. We saw a lot of proposals going into this legislature. Uh, you know, in fact, we did a whole episode on this, on all of the proposals that looked like uh, they were, you know, possibly really going to knock the wind out of wind and solar. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And in, in, in the episode y'all did, and I guess it was late April or, or early May, um, you know, still holds up. It's worthwhile for people to go back and listen to that because a lot of what Jeff Clark of Advanced uh, Power Alliance said during that um, during that episode that will hold for the for the future too. Right, these attacks on renewables aren't going away, and they're really, I think, sort of self-destructive for the state. It's really sort of cutting off your nose to spite your face. We have this amazing industry that is employing tens of thousands of people, bringing billions of dollars of investment to rural areas. 
And for some reason, some folks, and it's not, I want to be careful, you know, a lot of people say Republicans are attacking. It's not all Republicans. There's a lot of Republicans in the legislature that fully understand how great a resource this is for our state. And a lot of folks will say oil and gas companies are attacking. It's not, it's a very small subset of oil and gas companies that are sort of doing battle against renewables. Most of them are trying to purchase renewables. So to answer your question, most of the worst proposals did fail. Uh, Senate Bill 624, which we talked a lot about on that episode, which would have required permitting, would have created a backlog of many, many years for every wind and solar project. Um, that did not get across the finish line. There was another one that was basically trying to take all the costs of the backup reserves on the system, which is billions of dollars, and throw all of that onto renewables. Uh, that would be a major break from the way pretty much any market around the world operates uh, and would have been extremely economically inefficient, would have not only hurt renewable developers and generators, but also would have hurt consumers, would have added billions of dollars to consumer bills. That one failed. The only things that got across, they did add, there's some cost going to be added uh, for transmission to certain renewable uh, developers, but it's it, that language was weakened enough that it, it hopefully won't cause too much damage. The dust is still settling and everybody's still trying to figure this out. In conclusion there, the, the worst of the proposals did not get through. Doug, what's the, what's the genesis of this whole idea that's out there of oil and gas versus wind and solar? Wheeler and I were in Austin a few weeks ago. We heard it again. We've heard this for years that, you know, we can't have them both. We can have one or the other. But like you said, Texas thrives on both. We have what the, the largest uh, renewable energy market in, in North America, if not the world. I, I, I don't understand why, you know, why this idea is out there that we can't have them both working together. Like you said, also, there are so many oil and gas companies that are also investing in wind and solar. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jason. So, and, and, and to take that a step further, uh, you know, uh, I think it was late in 2022 and they've, they've filed this report at ERCOT, six very large oil companies. And we're talking about Exxon, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, Pioneer, did a study of how much electricity they need to power their operations in the Permian. If you think about what's going on in the Permian, most of what they're doing is setting up diesel gen sets, right? Diesel gen sets are obviously dirty, but more to the point, they're extremely, that's an extremely expensive way to make power, right? I mean, hey, explain what a diesel gen set is there, Doug. Sorry it's to interrupt. It's a generator, right? Just, it's just a generator like you, you could have on the, on the side of a, of a hospital for an emergency. Some people have them at their homes. These are obviously the larger ones to power an industrial operation like, a, like oil and gas. Uh, but, you know, so, so that a diesel generator Diesel is very expensive, right? Four or $5 a gallon. And then when you're trying to convert that to electricity, there's just a lot of losses there. So it ends up being many times more expensive than grid power. So the, these folks commissioned a study, uh, these companies, Exxon, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, et cetera. And what they, what they found was right now, their demand in the Permian is an industry-wide is about three or four gigawatts. So to put that in perspective, that's about the size of Austin's uh, peak demand. So like there's an Austin worth of demand out in the Permian for oil and gas. The gap right now for what they could use if they were connected to the grid is another six gigawatts. So that's pretty close to San Antonio, uh, right? 10th largest city in the country, their load, that's how much demand is there right now if they could connect to the grid. And they expect that to grow even more to somewhere around 10 gigawatts by uh, within the next eight or nine years. 
So they're actively trying to connect to the grid. And if you look at a map of where the Permian Basin, where the drilling is going on, right? You're talking about Midland, that area, and then down kind of down by where the Guadalupe Mountains are and like kind of down underneath New Mexico there, that whole area, it's right in the middle of the wind and solar corridor, right? So if they're connecting to the grid, they're gonna be powering their operations off of wind and solar. Not, so not only is grid power cheaper than diesel gensets, it's also grid power from wind and solar is even cheaper than that, right? So, so some of this stuff is just to answer your question, a lot of it is just sort of like, it's culture war stuff, right? It's just, it's nonsense. And, and it's, it's a very small subset. A lot of it is driven by the Texas Public Policy Foundation and some of the oil billionaires that, that fund them. Uh, so there are certain elements of the oil and gas industry that are fighting this, but I think the ones that are more future looking and are looking at delivering value to their shareholders over the long term, they don't see it as a battle at all. They really, true, you know, really truly see it as kind of an all of the above kind of a strategy. Yeah. And for anyone who would think that, oh, this is just the green guy talking here. He, you know, he's you know trying to make wind and solar look like they're just so great. Uh, this is, you know, when we talk about some of these bills that failed in the legislature that would have really uh, sort of handcuffed wind and solar, it took some odd bedfellows uh, to make that happen. In some cases, you saw some uh, strange coalitions uh, that came together to oppose some of those bills, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. I mean, in, in the past, we've often seen organizations like the Texas Association of Manufacturers, the Texas Industrial Energy Consumers, uh, Texas Chemical Council, and the Texas Oil and Gas Association show up at the Capitol and, and be generally anti-renewable. And, and we've seen a big shift there. I wouldn't say that they're the, the biggest proponents of renewable energy, but, but, but they have become, in a way, proponents of renewable energy because a lot of their large, you look at manufacturers, you look at the Samsung's, the BASF's, the Dow Chemicals, they're all buying renewable energy. And it, and it is all about, to them, sure, there's, I, I wouldn't suggest that those folks don't care about sustainability. I'm sure they do. But we have passed a, a tipping point now where it's not just about sustainability. It's about the bottom line. It's about renewable energy actually driving energy and electricity prices lower. And, and that is one of their biggest inputs. It's one of the biggest expenses and costs they have, whether you're an oil and gas producer out in the Permian or you're a chemical manufacturer along the Gulf Coast or whatever, energy is one of your biggest uh, inputs and costs. So anything you can do to drive that lower um, is going to be good for your bottom line. Yeah, so we saw them uh, taking positions against some of the more onerous, um, particularly like the one about adding all the backup reserve costs to renewables. There was a study that came out during session that showed that there it was it would have been four billion dollars in cost to the market for no additional reliability benefit. Still passed the Senate anyway. Explain that one to me. But the House, you know, saw that and, and heard from a lot of these business groups and others, and a, a large coalition, and just kind of decided, yeah, this this proposal doesn't make any sense. Doug, you're great to get down in the weeds to to explain this. But if I'm just an average Texan and I don't know enough about this. What should I take away from the legislative session? Was it good or bad for the Texas grid? Because I go back to what Governor Abbott said after the winter storm in 2021, saying everything that you know needs to be done to the grid has been done to the grid. Is, is that the case? Because this state is still growing. You know, temperatures are still getting hotter in the state, it seems like as well. 
So I, I think it's it, it's a mixed bag, but but as far as Yuri goes, and if there were another uh, cold snap like Yuri, and will we have outages? I think there's cause for concern there, and let's talk about that in a minute. But but let me. Well, just and say for people who haven't kept up, Yuri is that winter storm that we had in February of 2021 that was so right. deadly across this state, and where we saw blackouts in large swaths of this state, uh, and and they lasted for a very long time. That's right. And so if you go back to, to that event in February 2021, where, like you said, we had days long outages uh, and, and you look at what the root causes of that were. And there's two major reports for this. And, and if folks want to dig into these, you can you can find them very easily online. UT Energy Institute did one after the storm. There was another one by FERC and NERC. That's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the North American Electrical Liability Corporation. They, they went into great, great detail into what went wrong and, and really looked at the root causes. And those really, it's, it's complicated and I am reducing it down here. There's a lot of causes, but the major causes were disruption of gas supply. There was not enough gas supply coming into uh, the areas where the power plants were. Uh, a lot of folks in the oil and gas industry will tell you, well, that didn't happen until the power went out. That's not true. The reports detail this. There were about 40% reduction in gas supply before the power ever went out. Then the power went out. And then that starts a downward spiral because as we were just talking about with oil and gas operators wanting to connect to the grid, some of them already are connected to the grid. So when they lost power, their compressor stations and stuff like that went down, they were not able to produce more. So at the, at the worst part of URI, we were we had about an 85% reduction in gas supply. So the failure to weatherize and specifically winterize gas supply and power plants, particularly gas and coal power plants, which are still the largest portion of our grid, despite wind and solar's rise, gas and coal are still the largest by, by capacity. They, there were huge failures, about half of those plants went offline, most of them for freezing some because they couldn't get gas. The other huge part of that and why the outages happened was really, really high demand. And I know this gets walking down in the weeds, but I think this is very important because many of the folks, many of your listeners will have this in their home and not even know this. Most homes that have electric heat, and that's 60% of homes in Texas have electric heat, a majority of those have resistance heat. You're basically heating your home with a hairdryer. And, and when you're getting down to zero degrees, it's not like it's just a one for one increase with each drop of degree, it's this exponential increase and what we see is a home that on a normal day like today, even, even when it's getting a little hot, your home might use three or four kilowatts at, at a peak. In the winter with resistance heat, that can reach 15 kilowatts. You're talking five times in some cases, the and, and typically at least two or three times as much energy use on a really cold day versus a really hot day. So that runaway demand is a huge problem the legislature of all the stuff they did this session didn't address any of those things. There were no bills to increase weatherization of gas supply or gas power plants. And, and there unfortunately was very, very little done on the demand side, pretty close to zero to actually get control of that demand. I, I, know, I know this has been a long answer, but I do wanna just quickly though sure. say a couple of the good things that did happen um, that because those attacks on renewables were unsuccessful, and, 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 you know, credit where it's due to there were a lot of legislators that, that fought that uh, in, the, in the Senate unsuccessfully, in the House successfully. That is a, that's good for consumers. That means that we can continue to have growth in renewables. 
and and that'll put a downward pressure on electric bills. And yet you say that the attack on wind and solar is not over. You mentioned that just a little while ago. Do you see anything related to energy and electricity coming back in a special session? The governor has said that there will be several special sessions. Do you see anything like that coming back? And why do you think we keep on seeing bills uh, that that are targeting you guys? Is this a money thing? Is it just that you know some legislators don't understand? What is it? Yeah, so I don't suspect we'll see any energy uh, topics in specials. I'm, it's not a prediction because predicting what the governor and the legislature will do is not, as you as you guys know, is not um, wise. But I think it's unlikely because they did pass uh, some pretty major energy bills down down the wire. They're like literally on the second to last day, uh, those bills passed. Um, why is this stuff happening? I do think that there is a, a subset, a, a small subset of the oil and gas industry that is misguided on this and is attacking renewables. Uh, the other thing we saw emerge with Senate Bill 624 was some very um, large um, landowners, the um, Dan Friedkin, the Bass Brothers, um, you're, you're starting to see some of them that have these huge ranches over 100,000 acres, and they don't want to look out the back of their big mansions out on their private secluded ranches and see any wind turbines. And they, they, don't, they don't like the look of it, and they are funding massive efforts like the one behind Senate Bill 624, uh, which would have required that that permitting we talked about earlier. So I, I don't think those folks are going to go away. I mean, they're, they they have pretty much, you know, bottomless pockets. They can spend as much as they want. They're, they're billionaires and uh, they, they don't want to see their, their views, uh, you know, interrupted in any way. And that's that's really what was behind a lot of this. So no, I, I expect all of that to continue. I mentioned Texas, Texas Public Policy Foundation earlier they'll continue their attacks too. So I, I don't expect it to go away. Wheeler's ranch still has a pretty good view, I believe out in West Texas right now. So that, that's the good news for him. Um, hey, my hey, ranch me... is my backyard, man. <laughs> uh, Doug, here's the last thing I, I want you to, to get into uh, here briefly for us. I, this is an effort I you've mentioned several times in the podcast. I'm not as familiar with though. And that is oil and gas producers, especially out in the Permian Basin, uh, you know, Midland Odessa area, wanting to connect to the grid. Why isn't that happening? I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting and, and complicated question. And what I'm trying to get my head around, we probably should be building more. We are, we are building transmission out there. The, you know, the state of Texas is still investing, you know, somewhere around a billion dollars a year in transmission. Um, so it's, it's still happening. And a lot of that is happening out there. A lot of it is benefiting oil and gas producers. A lot of it's benefiting wind and solar. I mean, it's the same lines are benefiting the wind and solar developers as are benefiting uh, oil and gas. So I think you'll see a lot more of that. I think what we have to be careful of, the one transmission bill that did pass this session, I believe it was House Bill 5066, and it, it was specifically about building transmission for oil and gas. And I just think we have to be careful about that as a state because more transmission can benefit everybody. And we really should look at this more holistically. And I'm fine. I, I, I'm fine with oil and gas uh, producers being connected to the grid. So they're having less emissions from, from their, uh, you know, the, the diesel generators we were talking about earlier and all the other things on site that are, that are causing emissions. Electricity can reduce that. And that's, that's a good thing. 
residential consumers and small businesses throughout Texas also benefit from transmission. Right. Last year, there were $3 billion in congestion charges to the grid because we don't have enough transmission to get that abundant wind and solar into the load centers. Uh, my last question for you is, you, you uh, wrote the blog piece asking, is the Texas power grid fixed yet? And, you know, the short answer was sort of a hell no. And then you laid out the, the whole case of, you know, what happened in the legislature here this time. You have a unique perspective, though, because, you know, here you are with uh, Stoic Energy. Uh, you were a, a legislative aide, though, for five years in that capital. Uh, for, for three different elected officials, you know how this process works. You know how the sausage is made. You know how the process doesn't work uh, as well. And so you have interesting insight there. Uh, and I'm just curious uh, how you see the, the machinations that go on behind the scenes there in the legislature. We see it and, and just think, well, this is how it works. But uh, you have a, a really good understanding, I would imagine, as to how these things uh, did well or failed. And, and, and I suppose that helps you to you know, try to direct policy a little bit from the outside too, doesn't it? So, so I am fascinated by the legislature. I am a, a, a like Texas history nerd and a legislative nerd. I love all that. I love following what goes on there. Um, you know, some of these books behind me, uh, I don't know if you, yeah, you can see them, the Cairo books right behind me, right about LBJ, you know, um, uh, and the one about Robert Moses, the power broker, like those are really right about how power works. And, 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 I think it's fascinating to watch the legislature and see all that. And I did have that inside perspective as a, as a legislative aide. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, I encourage folks to, I think, a, I think a lot of what happens in the policy world and, and, and some of the language, and I appreciate you guys stopping me at several points during this and saying, hey, wait, stop, explain that. A lot of times the language that, that folks use around politics, around the power grid or whatever, whatever issue area it is, right? is, is off-putting to people. And sometimes it's meant to be that way. And, and if you look at the legislative process and the way that people can participate, you know, you only get two minutes, you got to wait around all day. They don't tell you when you're going to testify. Um, it's hard for people. And I just encourage your listeners, you're obviously listeners are interested in politics already because they're listening to this, but I would just encourage people to double down on that and get more involved. Read bills. I mean, the Senate bill 624, if you actually read it said, and the exercise of the police power of the state, like sometimes there's very, very plain language in there, right? And it, you, you can get, it is a language like any other language. If you speak it and, and get used to it, you become more fluent in it. Uh, and I think that that is really important. Uh, called me old fashioned, but I still believe in democracy and public participation. And I think that more and more folks get comfortable with that and just don't allow that off-putting feel that is that is given by the legislature often to actually put you put you off and stay involved. Um, I don't know. I, I love it. I'm a nerd for it. I encourage. I, th I think the more people that that follow this stuff and get involved, and they don't have to agree with me. I love it when people don't agree. You know, like let's let's cuss and discuss all this stuff, have a beer, and, and talk about it. The more people get involved, the more people that are smart on policy. I think the better off we'll, we'll all be. Wait, Doug, it sounds like you're saying there, these people under that dome in Austin don't necessarily have the fixes for the grid, and it's going to kind of be up to all of us to stay involved on this and help them with that? Yes, sir. Because look, I, I, this is something I want to write about in a future article too, right? I mean, like, you know, in, in those Cairo books where he's writing about LBJ, he always talks about 
um, the interests, right? Like the, the interests, the, you know, the oil and gas interests, the utility interests, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Those folks still run the building. They do. Uh, and, but that should not be a reason that people would say I would not get involved. I think to the contrary, we live in a, in a, in a time where unlike in the 1940s or 50s or 60s and information was so difficult to get, right? You just had a, a couple of TV stations and a radio, like everybody can see these bills now, right? Everybody can read them, can pull them up on a moment's notice. You can read blogs like mine and many others. You can listen to podcasts like this. The information is there. What we need is more people to get involved and say, the, the, the interests that are out there aren't just oil and gas interests, aren't just utility interests, aren't just somebody who owns a 100,000 acre ranch and doesn't want to see a wind, a wind turbine interest. There's our interests too. There's consumer interests, right? There's the, the people that are, that, which I think is a large majority of people that are worried about climate change. There's an interest there, right? There's not as much money behind that, but there's a lot of people. And if people get involved, that does make a difference. These legislators do track the phone calls that come into their office. They do track the emails that come in. They, they know when somebody from their district shows up to their district office or the Capitol office, say, this is my concern. I want you to address that. That stuff still matters. I can't emphasize that enough. So yes, I, I'm all for you know, having a different set of interests, which maybe I can, I can lump together and call the public interest. I, you know, dare to dream, call me naive. I'd like to see more legislators make that their number one focus. And they do keep up with those calls and those visits and those emails, even between sessions, not just when those sessions are active, but times like right now for the next couple of years uh, before we hit that next session. People don't real, yeah. People don't realize that we, we like to to stress that as much as possible here on Yolitics too. Uh, let's cuss and discuss and, and and have a beer. I mean, you're speaking Wheeler's language there. Uh, I think that's our motto, isn't it? We should change. We should change the name of the podcast. Um, and you make last thing. I'll, I'll make a statement on something you said. A, a lot of this stuff is, is off putting, and I think it's designed like that too, just so it, it it you know really tracks toward the industry folks. But to your point, and I hate that phrase, it impacts all of us. We all like lights, you know. We all like lights. We all like air conditioning. Uh, we all like heat, etc. We all like charging our phones. So um, everyone should get involved in this. Everyone should pay attention to what's happening. Because at the end of the day, it affects the economy. It affects how we live our life. And uh, and we appreciate you tracking that and explaining it for us. Because so many of these bills, you quoted so many numbers that, you know, Wheeler and I are way over our heads. We know the topics. We don't know the bill numbers. Um, but quoting those and showing how much interest there is out there is, is important, I think, to our listeners and to Texans at, at large. Yeah. And, and last thing there. Yeah. I was just going to uh, say thanks for what you guys do. This is a great show. I'm a regular listener. And and. It, it does, you, what you're doing helps bring people in. So, so appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I almost talked over that. That's the best thing we've heard the whole time, I think, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny that you were talking, Jason, about it being off-putting. I thought it was, it made me chuckle the other day when ERCOT came out and they were talking about this new sort of warning system that they're setting up uh, to where we'll all know when to sort of cut back a little bit when they're, you know, having some, some issues. 
and somebody asked them, you know, what do you think about all the stuff from the legislature? This is several days after the legislative session has ended. ERCOT's full of like really smart people who know all of, you know, what's going on. And they go, you know, they said something to the effect of, well, we're still assessing, you know, what was passed and we don't know yet. We got to, you know, we're still reading through it. We, we're, we're not sure. And you just think, wow, these are the like complete experts on this stuff. And even they, you know, I, mean, I don't know, maybe they just weren't in a position to talk about it yet or didn't really want to take a position. But I just chuckled and thought, okay, it's not just me. You know, we're, we're trying to keep up with what's going on in the legislature. And here it is, ERCOT that's in charge of all this is like, ah, I'm not really sure. We still are <laughs> sifting through that. It's, it's kind of murky. Yeah, it's going to take a while so. to parse through. All, all that language came together at the end. Some of it was written by people who, frankly, just don't understand electric markets. And, you know, it's there's going to be a lot of interpreting and trying to figure out just what to do with some of that, mm. frankly, just kind of messed up language that's in the bills there. It's going to, it's going to be a mess for a while. Doug, I'm sure we'll be calling you back on that. Thanks so much for taking the call. We appreciate it. Next time, we'll, we'll schedule this a little later in the, in the morning uh, and uh, share a pint with you. Yes, sir. Looking forward to it already. Thank you, guys. There's somebody else uh, we want to add to the conversation here uh, because he knows all about uh, what is going on here in Texas with the grid. Uh, it's hard to you know keep track of all this stuff, but Ed Hers somehow manages to do it. Uh, he is a professor uh, at the University of Houston. He's also the energy fellow there. Go Cougs. Uh, that is my alma mater, too. So always great to have you on, Ed, uh, especially after we get done with a legislative session uh, in which energy was front and center again. Uh, and I noticed that you did not testify this time. Why is it that you didn't testify there at the legislature, Ed? Uh, well, like last time, I don't think uh, I'm, I'm very welcome at the legislature, guys. Why is that? Yeah, what, what happened? Yeah, what's going on? Ed? Yeah, there, there are just too many billions lined up in keeping the status quo. Uh, commodities traders, uh, the natural gas power plants, the, the legacy power plants, the renewable energy power plants. Uh, no one in the legislature really is looking after the rank and file consumer of Texas. Isn't it true? Uh, you'd said that the, the last time you, you were asked to testify there uh, and, and give some expertise to the legislature, the person who set that up got in some trouble for it? Uh, fired the next day. Is that true? That's true. Yes, it is true. Wow. Was that a, a legislative aide or who was that? Ed? It was an aide. Uh, yes, worked work for a representative um, in the Dallas area. Wow. wow, that's so that's stunning. So you you basically don't think that they want to hear the truth uh, about what needs to be done to fix this grid. And so, uh, you know, on that note, I'm, I'm curious what you think of this legislative session going in. We saw a lot of bills uh, that were filed, and I know that you saw a lot of those as totally wrongheaded. Uh, what do you think about what came out of this one? It seems like a lot of those, you know, died along the way or got watered down. Uh, but was that enough to, you know, give this a passing grade, this legislative session, as far as uh, energy and electricity are concerned? Um, no, it's not. Uh, you know, much like the 21 session, uh, not much was accomplished. Uh, the, the fundamental flaw is that the generator companies, those that have the gas power plants, the coal and the nukes, don't earn enough money with the, the way this system is set up or rigged. Uh, to to give Wall Street an incentive to build new power plants. There's no rate of return built in. And this is something that, that folks have been warned about for 
you know, uh, more than a dozen years. Um, the the legislature came out with with House Bill fifteen hundred, and the one little component of it that's that's really interesting, a bit of ledger domain in in the back rooms of the legislature, is that the Public Utility Commission can now require Encore in Dallas, Centerpoint in Houston to build power plants, to build natural gas power plants, to shore up the resiliency of the grid, to help overcome black start situations, which we haven't had, but came close to in 21. Um, that's an end run around the ERCOT market. This is a way the Public Utility Commission can uh, not really finesse, but with a big sledgehammer approach, uh, work to build up capacity on the grid. And black start situations for our listeners who might not realize that is, is when a complete failure of the grid, when there's a blackout situation, you have to start from scratch. And that's a much, uh, much harder process than, than most people might imagine. I'm curious, though, throughout all of this, we, we've talked about, you know, whether the lights are going to stay on this summer after what Pablo Vega said um, in, in May. Uh, the you know the, the head of the uh, of the ERCOT grid, but but then I wonder, you know, the Texas miracle. How much of that is at stake? Because we saw what Texas Instruments did in North Texas. It decided not to build uh, a plant here, another plant, or expand a plant here after Winter Storm Uri in 2021 with that that ice storm that knocked out uh, so much power across the state. How much of the Texas miracle might be at risk? Because I'd like to think that Texas Republicans who brag about that all the time, don't want to put that in jeopardy. Yeah, it is in jeopardy. And, and as Peter Lake and Pablo Vegas pointed out eight weeks ago, if, if we have inclement weather, if we can't count on the wind and the solar to be there, then we're going to be short. Um, the uh, growth in Texas is fantastic. We've had uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of people move in since 21, but we haven't increased the dispatchable power plants, those plants that we can turn on and turn off. In fact, we really haven't increased that at all in the last dozen years. Um, we need to have the power plant infrastructure in place. And what the legislature and the governor are dealing with is the old adage, if the, if the price goes up at the electricity meter or at the gasoline pump, no one gets reelected. You know, this is not a Republican or Democratic concern. It's it's a smart versus not too smart approach. And, you know, kind of, you know, whistling past the graveyard, not to do anything constructive to to make the grid more resilient. So let me ask you that then. That sounds like, do you expect that ratepayers in this state at some point are going to have to eat it? Uh, are, are we looking at higher electric bills by the time this is all said and done, uh, if this is going to ever be fixed? Yes, we are. Uh, you know, the transition to renewable electricity is, is not free. You know, the cost of fuel is free, but we need to add transmission lines. That's going to require expenditures. We're going to need to add some, some batteries. And they're very expensive and can only operate for, at most, a four-hour window. So, so to get us over, say, a 12-hour window, we're going to need um, uh, three times the battery uh, dispatchable resources that we would have had uh, otherwise. Yeah. You talked about dispatchable. I'm sorry, Ed, go ahead. Yeah, dispatchable is something that you can turn on and off. So. Sure, yeah. I wanted to ask you more about that because it was interesting what you said about uh, the bill that passed uh, allowing the state to, to order um, these plants be 
be built. Um, it, it's it's been years, I believe, since a, a dispatchable plant was not as long as nuclear, but been years since a dispatchable plant was built. And for our listeners, a dispatchable plant is a natural gas power plant that that you can turn on immediately when you need it if something else goes down. And and Republican lawmakers in the state, I think Democratic lawmakers too, would agree. Listen, we've got to have these. The state is growing so much. We've got to have this ability to turn things on if if you know demand gets their supply gets so tight that uh, demand's about to, uh, to to surge past it. That seems like a good thing, though. You you suggested it's it's not a good thing. No, well, it, it is a good thing, but it's it's a circumvention of the ERCOT market. So it's essentially the legislature um, saying, hey, our our restructuring deregulation of the ERCOT market 22 years ago is a complete and utter failure. And so this top-down direction from the PUC, which which they've employed, um, uh, Centerpoint has added 200 megawatts of natural gas-fired power plants in the last few months, and and had a rate increase push through, so that you know those consumers in in Houston in that service area are going to pay for that. You know, this is just a recognition that these companies need a rate of return, a return on investment for their shareholders to put these power plants in place. And so what the, the legislature and the Public Utility Commission have, and, and ERCOT have recognized is the ERCOT market's not the way to do this. So they're going to, to build around it, assuming the governor signs the bill. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, building a new gas plant, uh, Ed. First of all, you know, for people who aren't plugged into this, how, how expensive is that? Uh, it is up to roughly say a, a million dollars per megawatt okay. uh, capacity. So if you're going to add a, a one gigawatt power plant, which is essentially a, a very large jet engine attached to a generator, you're looking at a billion dollar expenditure. Okay. As, as the grid grows and morphs more to wind and solar, which, I mean, we have the largest wind and solar fleet in the nation and, and perhaps in the world. Uh, with capacity of almost 38 gigawatts, nameplate capacity. Uh, these power plants are going to be used less and less, the natural gas power plants. So if if we were to build one today, it's going to be called upon less and less over the next 10 years. And because of the way ERCOT operates, it only makes money. That power plant only makes money, revenue, when it's in the game, when it's generating electricity. And so, whereas we might build a power plant today that could be used, you know, 50% of the year, you know, in five years time, maybe it's only used 10% of the year. And if I'm Wall Street, I've got to look at, at how I get paid to, to keep that plant in service, to, to keep the people employed. And uh, it becomes more and more difficult year after year as I look forward. Yeah, when you lay it out like that, I'm thinking this pile of money I've got over here, that kind of discourages me from putting that into building a new gas-powered uh, power plant here in Texas. You said something stunning uh, in a uh, write-up in Forbes recently, though, and 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 it really does sound like it, it it's pouring cold water on investors. You predicted that in 10 years, and this is just a stunning thought, in 10 years, uh, we'll be, you know, wind and solar here for the majority of our power in Texas and, uh, you know, gas, natural gas will be just sort of a backup that isn't yeah. used uh, as much. That's a stunning thought, Ed, uh, considering that right now natural gas powers almost half of our electricity in the state. 
Absolutely true. I mean, the, the coal-fired power plants are average 50 years in age. And so that's maybe 14 gigawatts maximum. And, and that's coming off either because the plants are, are falling apart or because of new EPA uh, enforcement actions that are requiring scrubbers, which are expensive to put on. The natural gas power plants that we have on the, the portfolio of ERCOT average about 30 years in age, and, and they're going to break down as well. And because there's no incentive for these power plant owners to reinvest and keep these plants up to, up to snuff, if you will, they're going to run off the grid too. Um, and, and so we've got 38 gigawatts of nameplate capacity for wind and solar across Texas. I think solar is going to be easily another five or seven gigawatts by the end of the year. Uh, the growth in this is fantastic. And, and solar, uh, for example, the big, the big solar, Samson Solar Farm uh, north of Dallas is 1.3 gigawatts of, of nameplate capacity. You know, when the sun's out, it's going to be presenting that to the grid. Uh, it's going to have zero cost of fuel. It's going to have uh, 12 full-time employees, according to their announcements, and maybe a herd of sheep to keep the, the grass down. Um, that, that contrasts with, say, the South Texas project, which has 1,100 full-time employees for two power plants that each one generates 1.3 gigawatts. That's nuclear, uh, yeah. So that's a that's a pretty stark contrast. It is a stark contrast, and and as the battery technology improves, gets better, and we deploy more batteries across Texas, we're going to see the the uh, uh, overbuild, if you will, of wind and solar charge batteries in the off hours, and so those can release electricity back to us uh, during peak demand. And of course, when you say. When you say that, though, Ed, I expected, you know, if I listen to that, I'm expecting these legislators who just wrapped up in Austin to say, hey, we've got this, you know, $32.7 billion surplus. Let's go out and buy a bunch of really big batteries because we see where this is going. That didn't happen. No, they really could have done that. And, and I think that's a, a pretty logical approach. Go ahead and build a battery fleet or build some natural gas backup units. Either way. And then auction them off to the power companies, the generator companies. I mean, that's kind of what we do with almost any big public works project today. That would be a significant boost in the arm for the renewable energy guys here in town. And, and the, the fossil fuel guys, it's, it's not fossil versus renewable. We know which way this grid is going to, to shake out. And natural gas, we, we have markets overseas that we can supply. It's not a, a question of, of we have to maintain natural gas power plants just to keep the guys in Midland happy. But how much of this is, is about, how much of the political resistance uh, do you think is about jobs? You talked about the South Texas project, the nuclear uh, project south of Houston there. You talked about the wind farm north of Dallas. Um, jobs is, is, is the big difference here, I think. The, the boys in the oil patch. Um, is that what's driving a lot of this resistance? No, I don't think it's the jobs at all. I mean, there's a, an alignment with the commodities brokers who want to see a lot of volatility in the um, electricity market. Uh, keep in mind that Ice Futures US, the commodities exchange, was the, the first group in to testify at the legislature in the last session, 21. Um, we all remember that 47-minute that uh, uh, phone call between uh, okay. then PUC Chairman DeAndrea and the Bank of America investors in the, the commodities brokerage of, of 
Texas electricity during the freeze. Um, this is this is interesting. There's a big game being played, and billions of dollars are at stake, and billions of dollars are behind maintaining the status quo, which essentially drove us to the edge during Winter Storm Uri, killed hundreds of Texans, and and you know according to to economist Bree Perryman, cost us over $200 billion in, in economic losses across the state. I mean, I know some folks in Houston who are still trying to get their houses and businesses repaired. Wow. Mm -hmm. but, but some people got really rich off of that and, and that system remains. That's absolutely right. Uh, I want to ask you, you know, on, on that note, you know, we've talked a little bit about this notion of, you know, cutting down on demand in this state. This is a fast growing state. You, you know, regularly get to this point where you feel like you, you know, you're running into that margin there where you might not have enough electricity. We're not really addressing demand a whole lot. And so there's this whole notion of, you know, paying people essentially to cut back on their demand. You have uh, highlighted that as well as being a, a possible solution here. And you know, noted that old HLNP, Houston Lighting and Power from back in the day, uh, used to pay customers to be able to switch off their AC compressors uh, on the hot days. And you mentioned that the setup is in place right now for ERCOT to actually do that statewide. Yes, we've had smart meters installed across ERCOT for more than a dozen years. Uh, it was led by an effort out of IBM to track data usage and, and electricity usage. Um, we could do that. And, and part of the press conference that, that was just a couple of days ago that, where Vegas came out and talked about sending out conservation alerts um, using an old-fashioned listserv approach, which is, what, 20 years old? Goodness. Uh, in California, they do this with a text message. So they would, they would text you, Jason, and say, hey, uh, would you mind opting out? We've, we're going to be in a tight market from four to six. Uh, we could turn off your home electricity meter. Uh, is that an inconvenience for you or not? And, and this past summer, over a million Californians on a couple of different occasions actually switched off their meters to, to give the California grid operators some space. And that worked. And they weren't getting paid. They were not paid, no. But we could do this. And, and so I've been critical of the arrangements that ERCOT has made with uh, Bitcoin miners, cryptocurrency miners. I mean, right. one, the only profits they actually reported for 2021 was when ERCOT paid them to shut down during the winter storm. Uh, you know, that's kind of ridiculous. We've got 26 million Texans who were here first who, who could have opted out if we had just had the opportunity to. And this has not been something that's been, been promoted by the PUC or ERCOT. And, and I would have to think the reason is the commodities traders want to see more volatility. If we could take a million meters off for about an hour or two, we wouldn't see prices spike as high as they do in these peak periods. Ed, considering the, the trajectory of where we are right now in the state with energy and and politics, where do you think we are five years from now? Well, I hope that we have a more stable and resilient grid in five years. I think we're going to be working towards it. The challenge is just getting there. And because the legislature has, has really refused to step up and do anything uh, constructive, uh, and, and this was pointed out eight weeks ago by Lake and Vegas at, at their press conference where they threw the legislature under the bus for not having done anything appropriate. We've got five years of ERCOT weather roulette ahead of us. Um, we're going to have coal plants and natural gas plants leaving the grid at a, at a, 
an accelerated pace simply because they don't have a way to make any money. And they, they can see that. I mean, they have to report to Wall Street. As the renewable fleet builds and a battery fleet builds, it's it's going to supplant the old style, the, the legacy plants, but we're we're teed up for more volatility in terms of service and, and certainly more volatility in the wholesale price market. And you said ERCOT weather roulette over the next five years. Yeah. You, that you sounds terrible. That. Yeah. It, it's it's not good. I mean, in in uh, December of this year, we had winter storm Elliott. Uh, we came really close to to having blackouts across the grid. And if you track the ERCOT pricing, which you can from from their website, uh, you can see that the commodities traders can can make a, a huge a huge windfall on any given day when some power plants don't show up. You know, we have seen the legislature complain about gaming the system. This is something we pointed out more than ten years ago. Yeah. Um, you can be in the physical side operating a power plant. And, and have it go off for maintenance reasons. Of course, that sends a big price spike through the market. Doesn't matter whether it's, it's peak demand or not. And if that company has bought futures, then they can profit tremendously from shutting off their, their physical power plant and the financial market, they can, they can clean up at the end of the day. Oh. And, and that's been a, a, a behavior that we pointed out is, is, is problematic across and uh, I, I guess I would just close with, um, you know, what you think about as far as our electric bills, uh, because people keep on moving here, companies keep on moving here. You say, you know, as it is, we look like we don't have enough supply to go around, but we keep on having more people show up. Uh, what is it going to look like for for our bills uh, to be able to, you know, try to provide power for all these people and and to get this thing right? What are we looking at? Well, we're really doing nothing to accommodate the, the inbound people and businesses into Texas. And as you pointed out, Texas Instruments decided not to expand a facility and build a new plant. Uh, I, you know, there's no incentive for, for Luminant uh, or NRG to build new power plants in this state to service the folks coming in simply because the pricing scheme is is against them. They won't earn a rate of return on the natural gas fired power plants that they build. Uh, the renewable fleet is not growing fast enough to pick up the slack and certainly the transmission portfolio is not growing fast enough to service the, the inbound. So we're going to be in a situation where uh, as, as Vegas, the CEO of ERCOT said, they're gonna make conservation calls and ask for us to voluntarily take our electricity lines off during peak demand. Um, that's not very business friendly. No, that's not very 21st century either. Hmm. No, I mean, Texans, we're paying for electricity as it is. I have a fixed rate contract. Yeah. I want it on in August and September when I need it most. It sounds like a bleak picture there uh, when we talk about these next five years where you're expecting more of these sort of legacy uh, thermal plants to to go offline, to to not be profitable anymore and to pull out. Um, and, and then at the same time, we see this explosion in wind and solar and batteries and so forth. We know that this legislature, you know, they're not going to be meeting again for another two years, year and a half. Um, so time runs out there to start putting anything into place legislatively to, to fix these things. Is this a matter where this is just the market solving it? Is it, is it batteries and wind and solar trying to outrun the legacy plants that are going offline? Is this going to be determined by the market? 
Well, you know, I hate to say market because, you know, every electricity market in, in the nation and across the world, essentially, is an administrative construction. And so uh, the Public Utility Commission, ERCOT, these are people that are all now appointed by the governor. And uh, we need to see some positive action taking place. We're going to have to build out a transmission system across Texas that is in many ways is going to seem redundant or perhaps overbuild. But that's because the power plants are distributed. The, the new renewables are powered in, in rural areas and the consumers, of course, in the urban areas. It's real easy, for example, in, in Houston or Dallas to, to set down a natural gas fired plant and take advantage of the infrastructure that's in place. But bringing electricity from South Texas or West Texas to the consumer regions requires more transmission lines. And, and we're seeing some of the, the price impacts across the ERCOT grid as say one region of the state actually has a negative price from you know, too many uh, wind energy producers trying to get through one bottleneck to get to the, the consuming regions. Um, it's, it's taking some time. It's not really a market approach uh, it's it's an administrative construction, and we need the regulators to to step up to the game. Ed, my last question is, um, based on the ERCOT weather roulette and, and the politics in this state and, and the conversations we're having here, uh, do I need to go buy a generator for my house? Well, you know, that's, that's a wealthy guy's solution. Uh, I'm not Jason Wheeler now, Ed, so slow down. Well, you're the one asking the question, though. <laughs> but, but, you know, keep in mind, that doesn't help the, the folks in the, uh, the low-income areas. Yeah. Uh, and, and they were the ones who were, who were hurt most by Winter Storm Uri. We had hundreds of people die. And, you know, if you have the money, sure, you can go do that. And, you know, our point more than 10 years ago was if you, you raise the rates across Texas by a penny a kilowatt hour uh, uh, in the wholesale market, that would have paid to keep natural gas plants active, to have folks get a rate of return to go forward and, and keep a resilient uh, reserve available. Uh, it's, it's an issue of, well, you know, 10 or 20% of Texans can install backup power. But the rest of the grid is is for the regular Texan, and and it's also for business. Uh, if we lose power across the state, we're out of the 21st century. We don't have traffic lights. We don't have healthcare. We don't have hospitals. We don't have anything that have water plants go down. Uh, yeah. We're in a real real bind, and uh, the legislature really is not taking this as seriously as I think they should. Um, so those people who can afford those generators, Ed, do you think that that may be a wise purchase as we go through this next five years? Is it something that they're probably likely going to have to use maybe even multiple times? No, I, I absolutely think that's the case. Uh, we're going to be in a situation where we have rolling blackouts instituted across the state, namely Encore in Dallas, Centerpoint in Houston. Uh, this is something that couldn't uh, affect uh, at all during winter storm Uri. Uh, as, you, as you recall, downtown Houston was lit up while the neighborhoods were freezing. Yeah. So that's not the way to run an electric utility. You say it's so a matter of fact, though, Ed, you, you really think that we'll see that multiple times going forward, that that's uh, going to become a not abnormal situation. That's right. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's an odd occurrence, if you will, uh, but it's going to be an odd occurrence more frequently. Hmm. Yep. 
hundred percent. Ed Hers, uh, always, uh, uh, always interesting talking to you. A little bit scary uh, when we talk about things like this because you know you hate to see things like uh, February of twenty twenty one repeat, but you know it's 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 what we might actually see here in this state going forward, even after yet another legislative session. Exactly. Ed, Ed thanks thank so much. You. We appreciate it. Good to be with you.